0: Namaste.
1: So let me explain a little bit about how meditation works, what it is from the perspective of Sat Yoga. We use an approach that is very similar to that of Sri Ramana Maharshi, who taught what he called Atma Vichara which is often translated as self-enquiry or self-investigation, self-discovery. And we have uh, fleshed it out a bit and explained it more in terms that the Western ego, mind, and structure can digest, perhaps, and make use of with more uh, uh, clarity than... uh, than the more simple and direct explanation that Ramana was able to give to people of India or people who were uh, on the the already, let's say, the path of non-duality or the path of uh, realization of uh, the consciousness that transcends the ego. So to explain meditation, we have to understand that in our childhoods, we were taught, through the acquisition of language, to represent ourselves and to create an internal self-representation made up of words based on the I thought, the I am, but I am this or that, I am the, the one who carries a certain name, a certain body, body type, a certain body uh, uh, style, attitude. Uh, and, and so the, the basic representation of the self encrusted itself gradually with more and more self-images and self-concepts. And we learned to live in the plane of representation. And we lost touch with the real, with the self we were originally before birth or before the acquisition of language. And we gradually hypnotized ourselves through the continual flow of internal mental chatter that would support the representation of the self and the self's attitude toward the representations of others because this internal representation of the, of the self uh, also contained and contains the representations of those who taught you who you are supposed to be and what they desired from you and demanded from you and. Uh, what they considered you to be, and the worth they considered you to have to them, etc. We Freud called those the super-ego figures. So, the self-representation, or ego, <clears throat> is, uh, is an internal representation that has become extremely complex over time because there have been a number of variations of self-image that we would create, one for the mother, one for the father, one for the siblings, one for the people in the playground, and one for the teacher, et cetera, et cetera. And so we would have a number of different ego fragments. I'll uh, I'll use Jung's uh, terminology. He said that the outer uh, layer of the ego, he called the persona, or indeed there were several different ones, so persona in the plural. And this was the, the part of the self-representation that we would use to uh, have interactions with others, to lubricate social situations, to accommodate, to act friendly even when we didn't feel friendly, basically to put on a false front and to navigate our way through difficult situations. And we would gradually get a very, uh, let's say, nuanced sort set of personae, one for when uh, we were at work and one for when we were playing football and one for being on a date and one for... Uh, uh, doing whatever other kinds of things we're doing, one for family reunions, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and they were all fake, of course. Uh, but we learned that in certain situations we had to act tough, in other situations we had to act sweet, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we got a repertoire of, uh, of masks, and the problem is that, in some cases, the mask got glued onto the face. And then uh, once uh, we couldn't take it off, we assume, well, that's who I am. Didn't they make a movie of that? Wasn't that a Jim Carrey movie, I think, of the mask? I didn't see it, but it's, I saw somebody showed me clips. It was too horrible to show here, I think. But it was uh, I, the idea is right. So uh, we have this, uh, this problem of some of us being Stuck in a persona that we can't take off and don't even know that it's a persona anymore, and then in other cases we just uh, we know it's a persona, but we feel like uh, we can't afford to uh, to reveal anything deeper than that. We don't want to be invaded, we don't want to 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 be known we don't want to be too vulnerable, and part of the reason for that is that. In general, we learn to use language as weapons. Uh, Words were for accusing somebody else of doing something bad, or to demand something from them. So, uh, because words were weapons, and people hurt people very badly with words, uh, it was a good idea to have a thick skin, and uh, a very thick persona that couldn't be uh, penetrated by somebody else's attacking language. And so the, uh, the outer edges, just like the crust or the bark of a tree, is a, uh, a defensive layer. And uh, that's unfortunately ended up being robotically uh, used without uh, great reflection. And habitually, uh, people tend to remain in a kind of defensive stance with the ego. And often will create uh, social situations in which that's justified. And so that the problem is, if you have a defense, or, or you, you have a more aggressive one, you're the one who sends out the accusatory uh, attacking words, at because it's better to attack first than to, uh, to be hurt and then try to retaliate. Everyone comes up with a certain kind of defensive strategy in dealing with a social system that is very competitive, uh, that, that's filled with a lot of uh, envy and uh, a lot of negative uh, energy between people who are competing for the biggest slice of the pie. So the persona is one of the the first layer that we want to peel away and be free of, because it doesn't serve us. It just keeps us closed in, in a very small uh, defensive stance in our own consciousness. So what Jung said is underneath the persona, he called this uh, the ego proper. it, it, the, the, per, the persona, we could say, is who you want other people to think you are, and the ego is who you think you are. But it's only who you think you are at a conscious level that uh, is the one that is still uh, attached to the values that it received externally and took in as its own. But it's not an authentic self. It's a, it's a self that is adapted in some way to the social situation. It's, it's that level of the self that enables you to hold a job or to uh, maintain a relationship, maybe raise children, or do, do the kinds of things you're taught you're supposed to do with your life. But it's a, a self that has not reflected very deeply on its true nature. And it can't reflect too deeply on it, because it doesn't have one. It's an artifact of the identity and the way of thinking that you learn to do uh, in order to uh, understand, in the best way possible, the reality that you were in. So it includes a particular frame of reference. And if you have uh, learned a frame of reference that from the social order, it may be one that doesn't serve you any longer when you want to go beyond the ego and discover what you are at a deeper level. So for example, most people were, were raised in an educational system that tried to convince you that we're living in a material world. And that matter is the primary uh, substance of the real. And mind is a byproduct of uh, neuronal chemical activity in the brain, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not a primary reality. It's an epiphenomenon, they call it, a byproduct. But matter is what's real, and so we deal with uh, problems in a material way. If you have a, a mental issues, we give you a chemical pill. The psychiatrists much prefer to give you pills than to have to listen to you. And uh, they they don't even know how to listen to you. Uh, and they don't know how to help you if they do. So a materialist paradigm is basically what we've been taught about reality, including a Darwinian or neo-Darwinian belief system about how we got here is a function of random mutations of organisms, and uh, had nothing to do with any intelligent design or any uh, power beyond uh, the uh, the material and the uh, the random. There's no order. There's no meaning to reality, and you can create your own meaning, but it's uh, it's not going to stick because. Uh, uh, the world doesn't really have one, and whatever meaning that you have decided on is your own fantasy. But there will come a time when it won't, uh, it won't work. It'll meet some reality that resists it, and it's, it's going to create problems. Now, I think that is actually true for the materialist paradigm itself, because quantum physics has pretty much overturned it, As so have other advances in science. But it's still what's being taught. How many people here believe in a materialist paradigm of reality? Is there anyone who's a materialist here? <laughs> no? Well, I'm, I'm so very amazing. Uh, it's useful not to be a materialist if you want to meditate. <laughs> You can meditate and be a materialist, but uh, that frame of reference is going to make you believe that there isn't anything behind uh, the chattering ego mind. And so uh, it's not uh, it, it, it doesn't bode well as a map of what you might be able to discover. So what Jung did discover and is that behind the ego, the people who came to his therapy uh, office, revealed that they have a shadow. Mm -hmm. And the shadow is the equivalent of what Freud called the unconscious or the subconscious of the ego, the personal subconscious mind. But the shadow is everything that you're supposed to not think and not want and not be and uh, not uh, talk about in the family system or the social system. And so for in the Victorian age, the shadow, of course, contained all kinds of uh, sexual desires and all of that that, that weren't allowed to be uh, talked about in good company. These days, that's really not what's in the shadow because that stuff is already in the ego. You know, so the old shadow has taken over the ego. And now what ends up being in the shadow is actually the good stuff. Uh, that you weren't supposed to show, because you're raised to be a cynic, you see. And so if you have any, you know, pious, uh, noble tendencies, you have to hide them. You know, that's not going to work. You're going to be laughed at, you know, if you are someone who has very high values. So, so things have flipped into their opposite. Jung himself <laughs> predicted that. He called that a nantiodromia, when, when the pendulum swings to the other side. So, so we have the, the old classical shadow has usurped the ego and acts out in a very conscious way. And uh, the dreams that people have now are not so much about that stuff, but they're actually very much about the archetypal level and the good stuff that people aren't allowed to express in their conscious lives. And for some people growing up in family systems that still had a kind of a, a regulation uh, between those who had an anatomical uh, body that, that was female or one that was male would try to give a certain kind of gender identity to their children. These days, even that isn't allowed, and uh, you are uh, so you have, you have people who have great gender confusions. But it may well be that someone in a male body has, has, has his male aspects in the shadow and more the feminine in the ego and vice versa for the female. Or there can be all kinds of mixtures. Or one can have the feeling function in the ego but the thinking function in the shadow. Or vice versa. There are people who can think but they're not allowed to feel. So. We, we understand how, how every shadow is going to be individualized, but that for the most part, it's what Jung used to call the golden shadow that people are dealing with now, that they're not allowed to see how great they are rather than how bad they are. So Jekyll and Hyde have reversed places. So uh, for Jung, underneath the shadow is what he called the self, But his self isn't what we call the self. For Jung, the self was an archetype. The archetypes, we could say, for us, in the Kundalini yoga map that you'll all probably learn if you stay here for a few more days beyond the weekend, uh, is a fifth chakra artifact. So there are... From the mind beyond the ego, the the consciousness uh, from which the ego derives, uh, there is an an image of the self that's a blueprint that isn't given by the parents. It's given by a transcendent source. And that uh, image of the self has all of those noble values all of that understanding of what the self really is, but it only has it in symbolic form. And so the self, as a, a symbol of the supreme reality, a symbol of, let's say, what in, in religious terms would be called God, or our Buddha nature, or Brahman, or, or whatever term for the absolute people have, uh, the. The, the expression of that on a personal level is a mythological expression. So in in uh, one of the forms of Indian philosophy, Shiva is the name for that. And you see on this famous uh, sculpture Shiva's dancing on the back of a dwarf that's the ego but the one the dancer, the one whose whose mind really is uh, is, whose intelligence, let's say, is really uh, able to flow through your organism, if you allow it, is an intelligence that you didn't get from school or from your DNA or anything else. It comes from that supreme source before you were born. Uh, Shiva literally means the zero point. So it's the very center of consciousness. For most of us, that center has not fully incarnated, because we haven't gone that deeply into uh, the layers to reach the center. So we have the self as an archetype, which is an image and an understanding of it. At some point in our meditation, that understanding is going to open up as a yearning and as a, uh, a readiness to receive from the, uh, the consciousness itself. The, the true energy that it symbolizes. That's, that's really what we want to get to in meditation. So, below uh, Jung's self, which is only a symbol, is what we'll call, the I guess I should call it the real self, which is that self that is not a symbol, but is real. Okay, and when I say real in this sense, it means not an imaginary, not a, a, s- a symbolic form, but that which cannot be expressed in language. It's indescribable. And the reason it can't be it, expressed in language, no matter how sophisticated your vocabulary, is that language is embedded in a dualistic model of reality. Language is organized as subject, verb, object. So whatever the subject perceives, the subject perceives as an object. But the self is never an object. But nor is the self the subject, because the subject is the one who believes that he or she is an I and is apperceiving the world through language. Because once we acquire language, we perceive everything and instantaneously label it. We no longer have raw experience. Our experience is always interpreted before we even become aware that all we're perceiving is an interpretation, not what's actually there. And because we have all of these internal images in our mind, the superego figures, etc., in most cases what we are actually going to see is a projection of an image of a being in our own mind projected upon someone who is in uh, in current uh, space-time. So, uh, someone may project their mother on you, and somehow, suddenly, they will treat you like that. If they project it with enough force, you'll start even acting like that person, even if you never met her. And you'll find yourself in what they call a projective identification. Because projections have energy. The mind projects with an energetic charge. So information is always being transmitted. We are constantly transmitting information with our minds to each other. We, we are telepathically all linked, but we're not accessing consciously that uh, channel. But it still has effects on us. So the, uh, the fact that we're projecting is also unconscious to most people, and the fact that we are being projected on is unconscious. The deeper and the more subtle your meditations become, the more you will feel. You'll be aware of both of those, and you'll be able to interpret the information of the projection you're receiving, and the energy of the, uh, the aura, the field that is uh, being uh, transmitted, radiated out by the intelligence of all of those various layers of the consciousness of whoever you're with. So the energy field here with everyone in it has a huge amount of information. If we can coherently organize it and, and interpret it at the level that transcends language because we would never be able to... Uh, to put it into uh, linguistic terms, but it does have a logic in terms of vibrational frequency. Now there's a, another thing that uh, Jung left out of his map that we need to put in. So first of all, this these three would, would what we would call the ego proper, the ego that is... Uh, a structured um, entity with the the mask, the conscious mind, we might as well put ego, superego, dyad, and the shadow. The archetype of the self most people are not aware of as part of their ego. It's more part of what we would call the soul consciousness. And the self, of course, is separate. But there's one other agency, Freud did talk about this in the early days, but then dropped out of the Freudian discourse, and uh, Jung didn't continue it. It's that there's a censoring agency within the ego. And just like a a censor in a, a government agency, this is the central intelligence agency of the ego. And it is that agency that's actually in charge, not your conscious mind. The conscious mind is a flack. It, it's the, uh, the the press agent of the president, <laughs> who's told what to say, but has no idea if he or she is lying or not. They they always are, but uh, they, because they don't know that, they can they can speak with some level of uh, straight face, you know. So, uh, the ego doesn't know the secrets of the shadow, or uh, of the other information that the sensor doesn't want you to have. That's basically what the sensor's job is, to make you tune out any information it doesn't want you to know. So there may be things I'm saying tonight that you have somehow not taken in, all right? You, you, you lost, your attention wandered at the moment I said something that you, were, you, didn't, you weren't allowed to know, right? But there's a lot of things that people are not allowed to know. A lot of uh, skeletons in the family closet from the past. There's a lot of social information you're not allowed to know. For example, today is the anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Does anybody remember that? Uh, that's still something that the public is not allowed to know. Who actually killed him? What was that about? It was a coup d'etat, but it's never spoken about in the press. It's forbidden information, even today. Not, not to mention 9-11 and all of the other forbidden uh, pieces of knowledge that you're not allowed to have at a social level. And so the society decides what you can know and what you can't know and what you're supposed to think about various events and what you're not supposed to think. You may rebel against that, and you, you know nowadays you can go to alternative websites and get other theories about uh, what happened on this or that day. And some of them may be as false, some of them may be better. It's very difficult to know information from disinformation these days. So we are in a a situation where the sensor uh, makes sure that you uh, don't get information that would enable you to liberate yourself from uh, the uh, homeostatic continual stability of the ego at the level of intelligence and emotional attitudes, etc., it has determined that you should be at, okay? And so therefore, that sensor can keep your growth stunted. And for many people, it doesn't allow them to grow out of the the, the egoic attitudes that they had as children. And it it doesn't allow a, uh, a freedom to think without uh, preconceptions or a sense of guilt if you start thinking in ways that you're not supposed to. And so the affects of guilt and shame and anxiety are used by the sensor to keep you away from uh, going too far in a direction that you're not supposed to go. So you have these internal controls on your consciousness. So these become the enemies that you're going to have to deal with. We have to slay the demon, all the demons, the personae and the ego demons that, that keep us uh, living at a superficial level, living uh, uh, with, a, with desires that we don't really want to want anymore, but we can't stop wanting. Uh, and fears that we can't stop fearing, even though we know that we shouldn't be afraid of those things, but we can't let go of them. So we're ruled by irrational uh, beliefs that the ego itself doesn't have the power to eliminate. So this is the catch-22. The, the ego wants to be free, but it, it's, it's got an agency within it that will not allow it and that will threaten it with, uh, with not only emotional instability, but literally depersonalization or, or some kind of a massive breakdown if it goes too far into the unknown. So uh, the unknown is forbidden territory. And yet if we want to meditate, that's exactly where we have to go. We have to discover the unknown self. Okay, so this is the problem. Uh, If we didn't have internal resistance, we would all meditate once and be enlightened and and liberated, and it would be over. The problem is when we get the mind too deep, deeper than the ego, so that we can see the ego for the Frankenstein monster that it is, the mind parasite, we can say, that's sucking our life and that's, that's making us live a less beautiful and fulfilling life than we might be able to live without it, the moment we try to free ourselves from it, we get attacked. And, and we can have such anxiety or such guilt or whatever that it, it, won't, uh, it won't allow us to let go. So this is the, uh, the problem. The good news is... <clears throat> that whatever the ego or the sensor throws at you is only an illusion. It's your mind. It doesn't belong to the sensor. The sensor did get uh, imposed or uh, installed like software into your system when you were a child, but you have the power to remove it and delete it from your system. The only thing is that you won't know who you are when you do that. And so, you have to become comfortable with not knowing who you are. And that's where meditation comes in. And the reason why, uh, why I say that is that what atma vichara is, to get back to the key to what we're doing when we're meditating is, we are observing our ego, we're observing the mind. We're observing every movement of thought, emotion, and mental image. And we are observing it with the understanding that all it is is an appearance, an object in the mind, and it is not who we are. And so our job in meditation is to disidentify from our own mind. To realize that the representation of the self is not the self, so the I thought is not I. When the th- when the mind thinks I want uh, a cookie, that's not my real self wanting the cookie. Okay. And because it's not my real self, I can say, oh, you know, I don't really want a cookie. You have that ability, but most people will just have the thought, I want the cookie, and they'll go to get the cookie, assuming that that thought meant that they wanted a cookie. Okay? It's not the case. <laughs> do not be fooled. Your mind will tell you you want things or you hate things or, or whatever you feel about different things, and, uh, and it wants you to be hypnotically suggestible enough to do what it tells you. If you can refuse to do that and decide to get a second opinion (laughs) from your heart, from your silence, from asking, is that thought true? Uh, and, And to not buy into it immediately, you will begin to have what's called free will, which you don't have as long as you believe your mind, as long as you're identified with your mind. And the problem is your mind identifies you with the body. And so you become obsessed with the body because the mind wants the body either to look good or to feel bad because it doesn't look good or to uh, have, have some uh, kind of relationship uh, to reality and to the world and to others on a bodily level because the ego enjoys uh, the sensory world, because that's all it knows, are the five senses. It doesn't know that there is a deeper level of consciousness beyond the sensory it, it, that is the real, and where real beauty is and real truth and intelligence and willpower and uh, nobility and all of the, the power that comes from that, uh, that level of our being that's eternal, innate, not born, not created, not uh, conditioned, by family and society. So if we want to become unconditioned and unconditional and real we have to stop believing the mind. And then the second step is you want to stop mental activity entirely so that you can discover Is there some intelligence beyond the mind that is being obscured by the interference patterns created by the chatter? So when we stop the chatter, in the silence we can suddenly become aware of a much deeper level of the real. And that's when meditation becomes interesting because we can become absorbed into that deeper level of being that we never know as long as we're thinking. Thinking prevents the revelation of being. Thinking is about becoming. And the world is in constant change. Nothing is the same. The Buddhists call this impermanence, right? There is nothing you can depend on. Everything is different at every moment. Heraclitus said you can't step in the same river twice. So the ego mind is constantly struggling to keep up with the changes and it's only interested in dealing with that externally changing, phenomenal plane. It's not interested in the changeless, eternal presence that is present regardless of the situation outside, It was present for you before you were born and will remain present after the body dies. It's that presence that you want because that presence of the real self has no fear, and it is extremely intelligent. It has no sensor. It has nothing to stop it. And it is the intelligence of the designer of the cosmos, the intelligence that is unlimited and infinite and cosmic in scope that your intelligence is part of. So the more that we are connected to the real self that we meet in silence and can be absorbed into and realize we are, that self is universal. That self is not partial to any particular bodily organism. It's the self that recognizes that the entire world is an appearance within its own consciousness. Therefore, the world is your dream. You're not born and victimized and traumatized in a world that is separate from you. No, that's the frame of reference of the ego and why it's defensive and, and why it's fearful, etc. cetera. No, it's a dream. And if you can become lucid in the dream of life, you can re-dream it. OK? It's very important that you realize your power which requires you to take responsibility for your dream. That means you have to stop blaming other people for why you're unhappy and blaming the situations you were in or the government or the, the society or whatever. Once you recognize the power you have to redream at least your aspect of the world, that which you uh, encounter. On a daily basis, you will discover that you can dream a beautiful world no matter where you are. And each of us is in our own private world. Even though we share a collective, each of us lives in our own individual, unique, private world. But that private world is a world that is usually disconnected from the intelligence of the real self. If we can connect it, then the private world with all of its troubles gets washed away and the cosmic world, the infinite world, that is the, uh, the world of unchanging consciousness, is able to be transmitted into this world, this plane, and, and bring its beauty and its goodness and its uh, truth into it. So life becomes very different when you are vibrating at the level of the real self you discover another thing which is that that reality is vibrational in nature and and we can modulate our vibrational frequency like a radio, we can tune to the persona or the ego and uh, the superego and get all kinds of nasty thoughts, or we can raise the vibration to the real and get some incredible downloads of genius level information and beauty. And the great composers, the great artists, the great scientists are, all of, are the people who have learned how to tune in to the real self and then bring new information into the world that was never imaginable from an ego level. Today the world is exhausted. Even technology is done. It, it's, we're, we're basically at the end because there's no one downloading from that anymore. So the world of art is pretty exhausted. You don't see too many genius artists anymore in the world. You don't see genius playwrights, and uh, most movies are not made for the genius level. They're, they're made for the child ego, and there's very little uplifting uh, artistic activity or scientific activity. All they focus on now is making weapons and uh, and control surveillance apparatus etc it's the 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 world is not oriented toward bringing beauty and truth in it's oriented towards something else but if we can change our frequency we can actually have an effect on the world as a whole it's a we have a very great power that no one is using if we can create a network of of that frequency of goodness and beauty again and make a grid of that level of coherent information and transmit it powerfully, it will overcome the negative incoherent noise. The signal of truth will overcome the noise of the false. But there aren't enough now who are focused at that level to be able to complete that task. But it is within our power to do it. So when we're meditating, we're connecting to a universal noosphere, as Teilhard de Chardin called it. Uh, uh, Noos from knowledge. We are able to tune in to the akashic records that Edgar Cayce called it. The information from the future. We can have precognitive information and from the past that we have amnesia about. We can have all kinds of information, but before we can receive it and download it and understand it, we have to be in our real self. We have to have have mastered the mind and have learned to turn off the noise so the signal comes in clearly. So that's what we're doing, and it can be done quickly if you can delete the sensor and disidentify from the ego self-representations. It's that simple. But you have to want to do that. And, and you have to be willing to uh, disobey the superego commands that tell you, no, you shouldn't do that. You'll go crazy, or uh, you'll be taken over by the devil, or you will uh, not be able to handle the energy, or whatever it is that uh, some part of your mind tells you to keep you from the infinite. You have to be smart enough and courageous enough not to stop, to take the hero's journey all the way to the goal of the realization of who you are beyond the illusion. Do we have time to continue a little longer? Let's do a first meditation, just a short one, to get your feet wet in this, okay? We can turn down the lights a little bit, and uh, we'll just meditate for five minutes or so, but just to get uh, people uh, accustomed. So the first thing is, keep your back straight, if you can, so that the energy flows up the spinal cord. (sighs) Take a few deep breaths, breathe out any stress. When you meditate, you want to be relaxed. So, scan through the body, and if there are any muscle areas that are tight, or contracted, give them permission to let go. Don't try to force anything, but give permission to relax, be at peace, you're safe. Feel how it is to to be safe in your body, to allow the body to relax into a level of serenity, where you can forget about the body, and the body will be able to slow down its metabolism. So the next thing you want to do, you can close your eyes and really pay attention. Pay attention to your heartbeat and give it permission to slow down. Your breathing will naturally slow down. And your brain waves will shift into alpha or maybe deeper into theta or delta. As you slow down your metabolism, your mind will also slow down. And the more relaxed your body is, the more peaceful the emotional state will be and the more quiet your thoughts will be. So because meditation wants to get away from the ego and the ego thinks it's the one doing everything, meditation therefore is a non-doing simple being, but be the nameless presence. bare awareness, no thoughts. If thoughts arise, they're not yours. Don't take possession, don't take ownership. Don't entertain them, don't follow them. The thought will let go and disappear again. But you focus your attention on yourself as pure awareness. You have no form, so you're not an object. You're not a thought. You're the awareness of thought and of objects, but you are not any of those. Therefore, you cannot know yourself as another. And therefore, all you can do is realize You are already the silent presence that is egoless. Now just be what you have discovered you are without intention, without expectation, just be the silent awareness And keep going deeper into the silence just by being, you'll find yourself being absorbed deeper and deeper into this internal ocean of consciousness. And the longer you stay in silence, the more peaceful, You may become aware of subtle energies. You may become aware of an inner luminosity. Doesn't matter, just remain silent, presence. And at some point there will be an understanding, a silent understanding, that this awareness is unchanging and unrelated to the ego or the body. Just stay with it, in it, realize you are the silence. It's not just that you have this or touching into it. This is who you are and you have forgotten it perhaps because you had paid attention to language and the sensory world but this is who you've always been. Unconditioned, nameless, formless, timeless. And just feel how enjoyable the peace of freedom from thought is. Now the longer you stay in this state, the deeper you will go. And just as going into the depths of any ocean, Some extraordinary discoveries will be made regarding what abides in this ocean. But you are the ocean, and whatever inhabits it is a power that can be used in very wondrous ways. Because the deeper you go, the more you are encountering the source of your creative imagination. But we want to be in the silence in which all thoughts and imaginings are potential but not activated. We want to accumulate potency, power. And the longer you stay in the silence, the more you'll realize that you have given yourself an energy charge that increases your willpower, your clarity, your ability to focus, your ability to persevere, your ability to open your heart. And in the peaceful silence you will realize that you don't have to put on the ego garment again. You certainly don't have to put on the persona mask. You don't have to be ruled by a superego or a censor. You are free. And at this level you can claim your freedom and function Much better than before, but differently, egolessly. So now the trick that I want you to attempt to achieve is this. I want you to come back from the meditation without leaving it. In other words, stay in the inner silence. Realize you are the silence, even after your body starts to move and your voice may start to speak and you, your mind will start to think. But you can remain silently aware, disidentified and detached and unaffected by whatever happens at the superficial levels. Okay. Let's open your eyes when you're ready. Om Shanti. Okay. Was that useful for people? Feel more peaceful? Okay, so the practice for this weekend is stay in the silent self, even while the body is active. In other words, meditate all the time, not just when you're in some formal sitting. Realize you are the silent self. You've never been anything else but pure awareness. And then go through life under manual control of the ego, not letting it act out, not accepting conventional thoughts and attitudes, and not trying to be some funny persona or some other kind of uh, presentation of yourself that's inauthentic. But let yourself relate from the depths of your real silent self. and you may discover that some very wonderful events occur because of the energy that you are radiating.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Murti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org.